Let's start with the numbers. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the organization NVRDC, about one in five college students say they've been abused by an intimate partner. 70% of those who experienced abuse didn't even know at the time that they were in an abusive relationship. 60% of those who experienced abuse said that while they were in the relationship, no one tried to help them. 42% of those who experienced abuse said they didn't even tell anyone about the abuse. Intimate partner violence, domestic violence, interpersonal violence, dating violence, gender-based violence, sexual violence. Whatever name it goes by, it's unacceptable in any relationship. My name is Randy Scott, and I'm a licensed mental health counselor at the UW Bothell Counseling Center. This week on the Crow's Nest, we're gonna meet some of the folks on the UW Bothell campus who are working to end it and make our campus safer. They're part of the Violence Prevention and Advocacy Office, the VPA. And a note about this week's episode, we are gonna be talking about a very difficult topic that some might find upsetting. Please take care of yourself. And if you find that you need extra support, reach out to the VPA, the Counseling Center, or use the My SSP app. Our first guest is Bethany Lee, a confidential survivor advocate in the VPA office here on the UW Bothell campus. Now, at the very beginning of this episode, I mentioned that the subject we're talking about this week goes by many names. So help me out with the language that y'all in the VPA office use. I tend to usually just say things like violence prevention or um, intimate partner violence or interpersonal violence um, to also include situations where we're looking at, you know, violence in homes uh, between parent and child or between roommates, things like that. So not just um, folks who have a romantic or sexual relationship with each other. So let's start with kind of how you were drawn to this work. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find yourself working in violence prevention, especially with college students? Yeah, um, I started as a college student doing peer advocacy um, in my undergrad years. And I really loved that work there. Um, I think a lot of it was just like it was something that people I liked were really into. So I kind of got pulled in. And as time went on, I really looked at this as an opportunity for me to get really engaged with community. Um especially because I had the opportunity to start on a very small, very community-based campus um, because it was about 1,500 students, but also residential. So, I mean, everyone was in each other's pockets all the time. Uh, So when instances of sexual violence and domestic violence were happening, I mean, people knew. Um, It was very much like, sure, things happened behind closed doors, but those doors had cracks um, because the campus was just so small. You mentioned that one of the strengths of working on a college campus is there's built-in community. In your work with violence prevention, what do you see as the unique challenges that college students face, especially when it comes to reporting and seeking help? Yeah, um, I think reporting is one of the um, difficulties that students face. I think there isn't a lot of consistency universally when we talk about um, what are our options for students? Because it all varies from institution to institution. Um, Cause we kind of have this top down model of what 
is supposed to happen. It comes out at the federal level. And as we've seen over time, um, options for changing those federal guidelines happen kind of in parallel with administrative changes. Um, and so the rules change about what universities and institutions are and are not required to do. Um, and so all of these institutions um, try as they might are just kind of keeping up with all these changes because we had recommendations that are coming out um, in the next few months. We had that just happen a few years ago also. So these institutions are trying to keep up, um, which really muddies the waters for the actual process of reporting. The other side also, um, and specifically what can apply here, um, is folks, institutions that have these really strict interpretations of guidelines about um, formal resolution versus informal resolution. Um, not all students want to pursue something that is um, this kind of very formalized institutional option. Um, and some folks really just have said, you know, I want this person to acknowledge what they did was wrong and that they harmed me. Uh, and then basically just not interact with me anymore, which is obviously a very informal resolution rather than this whole uh, big Title IX process where we get the conduct officer involved and then the hearing officer and we hand down um, university sanctions and things like that um, versus these kind of mediated conversations. And universities that have this very uh, strict interpretation of those guidelines are not able to provide their students with these mediated conversations or these informal resolutions. Um, so a lot of times the options are either you go through the whole big process, which can be very uh, traumatizing. You're having to rehash your story a few times. Um, if it moves to a full hearing, you're actually back in the room with the person who harmed you because the hearing officer will conduct a full day's hearing with both or all parties present. Um, and so obviously that's very difficult. A lot of folks don't really want to do that, um, understandably. Um, and a lot of folks, you know, traumatic thing happened, they kind of want a piece of closure and then moving on. Um, especially in school, you're so busy, your pace is very fast. You're keeping up with classes, you're keeping up with your social life and having something like um, an investigation, title line investigation, or something around sexual violence also happening in your life simultaneously, your attention's being pulled in so many different directions that a lot of students find that even the thought of the process is too overwhelming. Um, and they would rather, you know, sweep things aside and just move on without any resolution at all. Because, you know, students are, you know, sometimes navigating what healthy relationships look like, or maybe they're having a relationship for the first time. Mm -hmm. How does a student know when they need to seek support for something that may have been mm -hmm. interpersonal violence? Yeah, I the number one advice I always give is when folks are feeling uncertain, if something feels like it maybe wasn't right, that's enough of a flag to come and check in and be like, I wanna talk about this thing that happened to me. Um, is there an advocate available? I just need to talk about what I went through, get some processing. Um, we also are very fortunate to have a prevention educator um, available who uh, she does some work also on um, doing education around what healthy relationships do look like. Um, and she also runs her own podcast um, through LifeWire. Um, it's called We Need to Talk. Um, and I think they either have or will shortly be having an episode around identifying healthy relationships. Um, 
and so kind of the green flags to be looking out for. And part of what we're also, I think, hoping to do moving forward is to have an opportunity to really um, get out physically on campus and just be like, these are things we hope that you're seeing and kind of have this opportunity um, to really tell folks what they should be looking out for in a good way. Um, But I think generally when people, something just doesn't feel right, or if you are feeling at all like the person you're with or the people that you're seeing are really putting you down or making you feel bad about yourself, even if it's like, oh, it was a joke. Well, why is that funny? Why is putting down someone that you're partnered with funny? Um, And it's not, I think a lot of folks also, these very young folks, especially coming into their first relationship, it's not clear. I know when I was young, all the advice I got about relationships was kind of amounted to, you'll know when it happens. Um, which was up to this point in my life, I have to say, some of the least helpful information <laughs> and advice I've ever gotten. Yeah. <laughs> How do you know? You'll know when it happens. Right. Like, no, <laughs> you won't know when it happens. You have no idea what's going on. Right. Um, I think just kind of looking out for a partner should be someone who is supportive of you and you're supportive of them. Um, it's a reciprocal relationship, but it doesn't have to be transactional. It's not I do something for you, then you just do something for me. Um, and I think there is also some confusion for folks, especially there's a lot of a pop psychology and like kind of pop relationship advice going on on social media, especially, um, this idea that a partnership with someone or multiple someone's is supposed to be equal, um, at all times. And it's always a 50, 50 split. Um, that's not realistic. Sometimes you need more support. Your partner's giving that to you and you're not capable of giving equal support right then because you have all of these stresses. Um, My partner um, had an anniversary recently of when a really close friend had um, killed themselves and so was not in the capacity to be giving me the equal support that like she was needing. Um, But that doesn't mean that that was, you know, an abusive part of our relationship. And so it's about over all the big pictures that your relationship should be balancing out your partner should make you feel good. You should be happy to see them. You should be excited to see them. You don't have to be happy and excited all the time. That's not realistic for anybody. Um, but it's kind of overall, the general gradient is that you should feel good in your relationship. And if you're not feeling that way, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's abusive, but it is worth kind of looking into, you know, what isn't working here. Is it something that we can talk about something we can work out or are we just not really clicking or have we run our course? Yeah. You know, I think especially for people who aren't familiar with being on a college campus, sometimes Mm -hmm. there's also that feeling of, I'm not sure exactly who to go to. Is this something I go to violence prevention? Is this something I go to the counseling center for? Do I go to my advisor? Right. Um, You know, we work in the same space, Mm -hmm. right, between the counseling center and violence prevention and advocacy. Um, What advice would you give to students when they're trying to decide who to reach out to? I think there's this idea around campus that we kind of split things up about mental health versus sexual violence or violence prevention Um, with not a lot of like intentional recognition of the way those two things play into each other. So if you're saying I'm having a lot of mental health concerns around the fact that I had this incident of harm or I have some ongoing harm, definitely start with us at the VPA. We'll get you connected into our counseling center with folks and, you know, help get a warm referral going. Um, But if it's something where, you know, um, 
I'm struggling a lot academically. I'm having a really hard time adjusting to being on campus. Um, you know, it's maybe my first time really doing things very independently, especially as a new student. And also in the past, I had this experience and that's kind of been coming up a little bit more just with my stress level going up. Um, we're happy to see you in violence prevention, but that could be something definitely a little bit more aligned with counseling center or with your advisor saying, hey, I'm having a really hard time adjusting. I think maybe I kind of overloaded myself. I don't really know. I'm struggling with classes. Um, and they can really kind of get you in the right direction. With the caveat also being that if you go to any one of these resources and it feels like, oh, maybe this wasn't quite the right start, we're all happy to get everyone connected where they need to go. Which brings up an interesting point because um, I think one of the things that people are maybe afraid of reaching out for help with is because they're wondering, hey, is this confidential? Are you going to go out and tell everybody on the planet what happened to me? How would you respond to students who have that concern? Yeah, that is one of my favorite questions because it's a question I have a beautiful answer for, for like the first time ever. Um, the violence prevention folks, in addition to counseling folks, um, are confidential in the legal sense. Um, so specifically for violence prevention, we are legally protected from giving your information away to anybody. Um, technically, the courts can try and subpoena our records and we can't actually hand them over without consent from the people that they're involved on. Um, that was something that was specifically built into Washington state law um, to give us the ability to provide this truly confidential service so that folks feel like there is a support person they can go to who is actually going to maintain their privacy. Um, that being said, obviously, sometimes if we're looking at, hey, I had this incidence of harm or I've had some ongoing um, abuse with my partner, it's impacting my ability to finish a paper for class. Um, can you help me with that? We'll talk over with students, hey, we have to obviously talk to your professor briefly um, and ask for an extension. Generally speaking, though, when faculty are hearing from us in violence prevention, all we end up really saying is, I have a student of yours who needs an extension on a paper. Can we have that, please? And they don't ask questions. They know that we can't give them information. Um, and we give as little information as possible. Um, but in cases where we have to make accommodations, obviously then, since it's on behalf of a particular student, um, they'll know that that student's working with us, but nothing beyond that that we don't need to share. Let's talk logistically. When somebody is decided that they have experienced something and they're ready to come see you, what is the process? What do they do and what does that look like? Yeah, this is also a very good question um, that we get asked a lot is how do folks access your services? Um, at this point, due to staffing, we do not do walk-ins. Um, we are appointment only. Um, you can always call us um, or email us, and that will be usually the easiest way to get a hold of someone in terms of actual coming in to meet with an advocate um, it's best definitely if you're going to email to just say, I would like to talk to somebody um, just because we can't guarantee um, emails won't get hacked. And that's an easy way for us. We email back with a couple of options we can do in person. Um, we have a private office for meeting with students with. Um, we can also do Zoom or phone appointments. It all comes down to really we need to maximize what is going to be safe and private and accessible for the students that we're working with. 
Um, and so I've had students who are like, I really want to meet on campus because it gets me a chance to get away from this like really unsafe environment if I just tell these people, oh, I have to be on campus for something. Um, and I have some folks who um, we worked with over the summer quarter who were not on campus but still needed support. And so we were able to have these kind of ongoing Zoom calls and phone calls just based around. Um, we're here in the office, but they are out of state, um, back visiting family or something like that, too. So let's wrap things up a little bit talking uh, about, you know, the healing process. Right. Right. Because ultimately, that's the goal. Somebody's coming mm -hmm. in because they want to feel better. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that, about what that process looks like and um, hope on the other side. That's always such an interesting question folks ask about the healing process. Um, and especially when students come in, they're like, how do I heal? Um, and that's a very highly personalized question. And I mean, it's going to depend. Everyone's going to have their own kind of journey through healing. And I know it sounds a little cliched, but it is truly a journey um, in the same sense of, you know, the road is going to kind of have some switchbacks and it's going to feel like maybe you're taking some steps back. Um, but what we're really here for is kind of connecting students with all the skills and resources that they need to kind of empower themselves through their healing journey, particularly when we're talking about instances of um, sexual violence um, and gender-based violence. We're looking at instances where folks have had their power and agency taken away from them. And so the work we do really walks alongside of our students and really gives them support to get back into the habit and kind of re-familiarize themselves with making their own decisions and having that kind of personal and bodily autonomy. And so really the healing journey becomes uh, this process where folks kind of rediscover who they are as individuals and who they are as stewards of their own body um, and stewards of kind of their own social life and work life and personal life. And so a lot of what we do in terms of long-term healing um, with the caveat that we're not actual um, trained counselors <laughs> um, is that we kind of help folks reconnect with understanding themselves, understanding what their boundaries are and understanding who they are really. Um, Cause a lot of who you are as a person can get lost um, for a brief time when you've kind of lost that control of yourself um, and someone's taken that control away from you. This is such an important conversation. Bethany, thank you for visiting with me today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Randy. I loved it. Bethany and the rest of the VPA staff can be reached through the VPA website, which we're going to link to in this week's show. Tomeo is a live wire prevention educator and specialist working with the Office of Violence Prevention and Advocacy, the VPA, on the UW Bothell campus. I think often students want to know how people get involved in work such as violence prevention. What brought you to the work that you're doing now? Yeah, so I would say that my path here started really in high school. Um, it's a sad story, so be prepared here. Uh, 
I had a friend who was murdered by her ex-boyfriend our junior year of high school. So um, very tragic start. And then the following school year, there was an organization called DateWise, um, and they were a peer education program that was actually Maple Valley, and they're still running today, which is amazing. And they were recruiting for peer educators at my high school to talk about teen dating violence specifically. So that's where my path originated from. Um, went to college, went to WSU, did all the things there, did um, a lot of sexual health education work, um, which is tangentially related to violence prevention and dating violence specifically. And when I was graduating, as all of us are, we're like, what am I going to do with my life? I majored in psychology. What am I doing? And the job posting for the job over there that I was working at for five years opened up and it was a violence prevention, domestic violence prevention educator and advocate. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I did in high school. This is so amazing. Like I still am passionate about this. I still want to talk about how can we prevent, you know, dating violence, domestic violence and people from dying um, because no one should experience that. And I did that work for about five years over in Pullman, Washington, did not have plans to stay in Pullman. So that was a fun little change of course, but I was looking to move back over here. I have a lot of family in this area, which brought me here specifically and here to UW. You know, your story brings up an important point. We often think about how dating violence impacts one person, the survivor, but it really impacts whole communities, doesn't it? Like, like it did you, probably your entire high school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely did affect our high school, affected obviously her parents as well. Um, and yeah, our community as a whole, I think our high school got together. We had a vigil for her. A lot of people were deeply affected because who is experiencing the death of a, a classmate at 16, 17? Like that is so young. So yeah, I think the prevention part of it is really getting into the community and talking about those social norms that allow this to be so prevalent and to be normalized almost. So, right, some of the behaviors and of course, um, looking back, Vision's 2020, but yeah. their, her parents also, you know, recognized there were just a few comments that he would say that were just a little bit like, ooh, that's kind of odd, you know, lots of behaviors that we justify and normalize of just like, you know, um, wanting to spend a lot of time together, not spending too much time with other friends, right? Those types of things, which when you're a teenager in high school, especially, but even in just generally in new relationships, you want to spend a lot of time and you become a little more isolated and we don't give that a second thought, but maybe it's something that we, we should, because as I talk about it, as we learn in violence prevention, especially with domestic violence, isolation is one key tactic that is utilized. You know, that's a really wonderful point. So often these behaviors that become concerning start out as quote unquote normal, like wanting to spend a lot of time with someone left unchecked can turn into isolating someone. So how does somebody, how does somebody know the difference? Yeah, I think it is a little challenging to tell when it's like, um, you know, isolation versus just starting a new relationship. I think one way to know the difference or to know when to be concerned is when are you, if you are seeing other concerning behaviors happening in addition, so the, you know, general control, like criticizing what a person looks like, what they do, who they're hanging out with that um, will contribute to that isolation factor. Um, we're speaking specifically to that. Uh, yeah. I think another thing 
it would be if canceling plans is happening more frequently. Maybe they're not outright saying it, but you know, your friend was someone who prior to this relationship would go out with you all the time or would always be hanging out. And then after the relationship, they're being seen less and less. If prior to the relationship, they were usually at home on their own anyways, um, maybe not as much of a red flag for that person. Like, oh, this is in the normal behavior. They didn't go out much or hang out much anyways. But after the relationship they you are seeing and they're still continuing that, maybe not as much as of a concern. But yeah, if those close connections are being lessened, minimized, if they are um, have just a change that you've noticed that doesn't seem to align with their personality prior to the relationship and their personality or some of their traits are um, being cut or they're, you know, starting to doubt themselves, that might be a cause for concern. Okay. Let's say you have a friend and you're starting to see those things in someone's relationship. How should you, as a friend, interject yourself into a situation in a safe way to help someone going through that? Yeah, so I recommend definitely checking out WISCADIF, the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They have a friends and family guide that answers this, but it comes down to three steps. You want to ask a question, then you want to listen, and then stay connected. So asking a question, bringing up your concerns, and with those questions, really focusing on the behavior, not focusing on the labels, because a lot of people may not be ready to hear it, or they definitely don't want to be labeled. So you know, relationships start with a lot of love. So when you are targeting their partner or calling their partner a perpetrator or an abuser, they're going to come to the partner's defense. Like, well, you don't get it. And you're not in this relationship. You're not seeing all the things. So just noticing the behavior, like, Hey, I haven't seen you around lately. Like I'm kind of concerned what's going on. Or does your partner always talk to you that way? Like, that's not okay that they put you down like that. And I'm, I'm just really concerned about what's going on here. Um, a lot of times people aren't ready to hear it or they're not ready to see it, or they just don't see it at first. And it might take some time, which can be extremely frustrating, but by asking those questions, you are opening the door or even opening a window to, I'm someone you can talk to because I am starting to see this pattern. Um, and then after that, listen, of course, listen to what they're telling you. Don't minimize their experiences or try to, justify the actions either, because depending on the relationship, you might be friends with both partner parties and may not have experienced that from the person who's causing the harm of like that, those harmful behaviors or actions. So really giving them space to listen and giving space to hear what they're saying and listen to what they're saying. And then after that, stay connected. So whatever that might look like, maybe that's checking in, maybe that's dropping off, um, Food, you know, in the pandemic, it's a lot more difficult to stay connected, but finding any way that feels um, needed and necessary and appropriate for your relationship level, your distance and your um, level of comfort with safety um, in all, all forms that it takes. And yeah, like I said, the Whiskative Friends and Family Guide has a lot more questions that you can ask, more ways, um, suggestions on how to stay connected and just a great, great resource overall. You know, for a lot of college students, this represents a time in their life when they're getting into their first real romantic relationship. Even if they had a romantic relationship in high school, a college one can look very different. And I'm curious with that transition from high school to college and the change in the way people date, 
How do you factor in violence prevention into that transition? Yeah, I think even in high school, we're not being told or we're not being taught what are healthy relationship behaviors. We're seeing from the media what we want our relationship to be and how we idealize relationships to be. And coming that transition, right, you're coming into your own as an adult. Maybe you're living alone for the first time. Maybe you're just getting a new group of friends in general because you moved away from um, your high school community. So there's definitely a lot of changes, and I don't want to minimize that. But I think getting that baseline of what does a healthy relationship look to you? The way we define it in our um, in a workshop that we have here with the VPA is relationships are based in equality, trust, honesty, and open and honest communication, just as a short. So whatever those things mean to you is what you want your relationships to be having. And you want them to be having all of those things, at least a majority of the time, right? There's going to be times, of course, no relationship's perfect where maybe some dishonesty happened or maybe some um, trust was broken because we're only human and I want to give that grace. But if those things are being broken or if those things are not happening a majority of the time, then that might be a cause to evaluate that relationship or maybe ask some people around you who can see things from that outside perspective and see if they feel like anything is concerning about the relationship. You know, I'm curious how you've seen things change when it comes to violence prevention since you started in this work. And since there's still a lot more work to do, what is your hope for the future of violence prevention? Yeah. So in my time at, in Pullman, I would say like that was the depths of all the change and a, a lot of the, you know, my eyes being very involved in it. So I would say the passing, especially of the comprehensive sex ed bill in the state of Washington, which was only three years ago, I want to say. So that was a major change. We had a peer group um, of help of educators who were in high school that also lobbied for that um, bill to be passed. So that was amazing to see that was something they were able to contribute with as well and to be part of that change. So I think that, you know, getting started and being pushed because that comprehensive sex ed bill not only covers anatomy and physiology of, you know, reproduction and menstruation and all those things, but also consent. So talking about what consent is, what it isn't, and things like that um, at age-appropriate levels, that is one way that we can, you know, hopefully be cultivating healthier relationships because, yeah, we get told the mechanics of how to create a pregnancy, but not the consent of creating a pregnancy or having sex for pleasure, for example. Um, so I think that is one small introduction. I think with the introduction of TikTok in particular, there's a lot of, you know, TikToks that are being um, talked about on what are healthy and, on, and even abusive relationships. I'm seeing a lot of those on my feed, which is probably because I'm in this line of work, but just that they're being made by the average person. And it's not coming just from advocates of, Hey, this is what gaslighting is, or this is, was my experience in an abusive relationship and people in the comments. I mean, of course there's going to be, you know, not so great people, but it's opening the eyes of, oh, this isn't an okay behavior. Like, yes, it might be normal, but it's not healthy. And I think that differentiation is something that I try to remind people gently of as well, because they try to conflate. Some folks may conflate normal and healthy as the thing, but I like to give the grace of not everyone's normal is healthy. So just changing the, that language. And I think overall language change um, is what we need to have to happen. Um, some of the things that I would hope for is that 
change to continue in a positive way. There's been some setbacks, of course, because nothing's perfect. Um, but I hope for the future that these conversations are just continuing um, and just expand on, yeah, just all aspects of healthy and unhealthy relationships and how we can move them to be help healthier and how we can make healthy relationships more normal, especially in media, because that's where we get a lot of our examples from besides our family. Karina, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for sharing such a personal part of your story. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me on. You can reach out to learn more or schedule a workshop for your campus, group, organization, or class with the VPA through their website, which we're going to link to in this podcast. Erica Lee is a confidential survivor advocate with the VPA. In this episode, we're getting to know the folks who work in the Violence Prevention and Advocacy Office. So Erica, I'm curious how you got involved in this line of work. Yeah, so uh, I started in this role without having any prior experience working as an advocate. I had previous experience working as a case manager, primarily with folks who are unhoused within the King County area. And whenever I would work with um, women, femme, non-binary, uh, queer folks, there was always this history of uh, sexual abuse, sexual violence and harassment. Um, and uh, it's, it's work that um, doesn't feel unfamiliar to me, but um, I think it's such an important thing to address also within the environment of higher ed as well. And so I'm really grateful to be involved in this work um, doing direct advocacy work um, within this community. You know, conversations about identity and intersectionality are often overlooked when we discuss interpersonal violence. So how do you think sexual orientation, gender identity, and so forth come up in, in your work with violence prevention? Yeah. So uh, I think within our work or within this industry as a whole, there's such a strong focus on women's rights, women's liberation, which is so important. But I think we're also failing to recognize um, all the other people um, with lived experience relating to sex and gender-based violence and harassment um, that uh, experience harm in um, both similar and really different ways uh, based on our identities and the ways that um, violence is stigmatized against our identities. I personally am a queer person. I am also BIPOC and I'm also a survivor as well. And I feel as though personally, we sometimes don't recognize our intersectionality when we are talking about violence and harm as this industry in and of itself is really, um, it's pioneered by white women typically. And yeah. so, yeah, it's a, um, it's a really complicated thing, especially um, on our campus specifically, we are a BIPOC majority campus. And so it is so important that we are really truly centering the needs of our students when we're doing this work and focusing on um, on intersectionality, on the diversity of our identities and the different ways in which we carry our 
um, cultural narratives, the way that we carry our um, gender narratives and potential biases and stigma attached to those as well. Um, I think it's so important that we're doing this work in a way that um, really brings us all together to make sure that we're ultimately, um, yeah, addressing um, just the varying different needs of of our students and of our of our community as a whole as well, of our faculty and staff and administration. Being able to share a story requires a lot of vulnerability. So I, I'm curious, how do y'all create a safe space for that to happen for folks? I think a creating a safe space for somebody really comes back to understanding how trauma shows up in our shared spaces. We can't feel safe if we aren't addressing our individual and our collective traumas that we experience, whether that's the immediate crisis at hand of what somebody might be experiencing face-to-face -face with somebody in their lives, as well as that collective trauma that can show up as a racial discrimination and stigma and violence or the ways in which um, we might be silenced in our voices based on how an institution might um, present itself. And so uh, we must address both individual and collective trauma to create safety. We must uh, actively listen to the people in front of us to create safety and also respect those boundaries as well. If somebody's feeling like they don't want to speak. That's something that we totally have to respect. Um, how do we create safe space without pushing somebody beyond their willingness um, for their own autonomy to share? I think that's uh, really ultimately um, like uh, what we need to do is just give back autonomy to the people who are willing to share space with us so that we can create that safe, uh, that safe space for them. Because we are a small campus, our faculty and staff get to know the students here. Because of that, they often see things that might be missed by employees on a much larger campus. So how can faculty and staff at UW-Bothell who see something concerning address it with a student or students? Yeah, if uh, I am talking to a staff or faculty member who is uh, potentially witnessing something either actively taking place or maybe recognizing some warning signs uh, for a student. We really try to emphasize a bystander intervention when considering how, how do we get involved? What are the ways in which we can uh, uh, intervene when, there's, uh, when we're witnessing active harm? And so, yes, the five Ds of bystander intervention for sure. Um, we want to, A, um, possibly delegate if we are um, feeling as though uh, we need to hand this off to somebody. So a good option for this would be maybe you're a faculty member, you see something happening in your classroom space and uh, you wanna make sure that the right people are notified. You can submit a care team report or you can reach out to the VPA. That would be a great way to delegate this uh, instance to somebody who is a trained professional in this work and we would be able to address uh, the concern through our team. Um, another um, technique would be to distract. And so if you're a 
if you're a teacher and you maybe see something happening between two students in the moment, a good way to distract would be to maybe call out on uh, the person who is uh, um, causing harm and say, hey, can you come over here real quick? I wanted to talk about that assignment with you really quickly. Or maybe figuring out ways to kind of just intervene. Um, we don't necessarily have to call out what's happening, but just to get in between the two students, I think is um, really important for us to be able to use our own like privilege or that power that we hold in that classroom space to use that and to get get in between so that the harm does not continue and we're just uh yeah kind of like being that distraction element third d would be to document so we have a, a documentation and we've seen this take place um really prominently within the Black Lives Matter movement, we've seen documentation um, come up and it shares the narrative of harm widely with the public. That's one way that we've seen documentation come up, but also um, we wanna make sure that if we're documenting harm, we always wanna get consent from the person who is uh, the receiver of harm if uh, we are potentially like thinking about sharing documentation out. Maybe a documentation could look like in the form of writing something down. Maybe it could look like a, taking a video recording on your phone or um, taking a photo, but we always wanna be looping back with the person receiving the harm and saying, hey, like I, I took this video down because I saw there was something going down and I wanted to share that with you. What do I do next? Um, give that autonomy back to that person. Yeah to see how they'd like to utilize that documentation. And if they want it deleted, we delete it. But having a, a, like a, a source of documentation provides a piece of evidence um, that might be needed further down the line. So we have the opportunity to call out behavior that we see as harmful. Um, we also have the opportunity of calling people in. I know that there's a huge yeah. um, movement around either calling out or calling in. Both have their pros and cons given a certain situation. Um, but also I think worth mentioning is that sometimes having that direct call out can escalate um, behavior of harm at times. And so we really wanna be assessing for our environment of safety making sure that a call out in that moment won't create more harm for the for the people involved. How do we enter a space with that level of cultural responsiveness towards a situation? Um, sometimes we can be really well-meaning and well-intentioned and try to uh, intervene or try to um, help. And sometimes it can escalate situations or sometimes it can uh, um, derail the conversation. Um, how do we make sure that we are recentering the needs of um, the person who's experiencing the harm? And uh, yeah, how do we have that conversation? Sometimes uh, we don't feel comfortable intervening in the moment and that's okay. Um, there can be a lot going on and uh, um, Sometimes uh, the thing that we can do is touch base with the person who's received harm after the fact. Maybe we've uh, witnessed the harm happen and we wanna touch base saying like, hey, I saw what happened between you and da da da. Are you okay? Like, how are you feeling right now? Do you need support? Is there anything that I can do to make sure that you're getting what you need um, after the fact? And uh, I feel like a, 
as more people know what those small things can be, the more we create that collective power that we can really lean on one another as a community to really change this culture and narrative of experienced harm. As we wrap up this episode, let's talk a little bit more about healing. Now, as we talked about earlier, the healing journey can look very different for everybody. So instead, let's talk a little bit about how how does the process even start? I am the believer that we cannot address healing until we have addressed the relative well-being of our circumstances. Um, I attended a uh, presentation from this speaker named Teddy McGlynn Wright, who he um, he visualized this within like these three bowls nested. Um, like there's a little bowl, a medium bowl, and a larger bowl, and they're all kind of inter-nested within each other. The big bowl was holding the other two bowls, and the big bowl really was around relative well-being. Um, the second bowl was around um, self-awareness, and then the little bowl in the very top was our skill building. And so he was really trying to make the point that we can't address skill building unless we have self-awareness. We can't we can't have self-awareness until we have relative well-being. So how do we get somebody who's experienced trauma to the point of being able to work on themselves and to be able to build those skills to create something better for themselves? We really need to focus on creating that relative well-being as a collective community together. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, if we are maybe on campus and uh, we have a you know, somebody who is experiencing harm or we maybe receive a disclosure from somebody, um, how do we help that person achieve some kind of improvement in their relative well-being so that we can really motivate them towards self-awareness and skill building? Um, and yeah, I, I wonder what that could look like on our campus. What could that look like within our community to really support one another towards those goals? Because I really think that we can't have one without the other without the other. Erica, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Randy. Appreciate it. Erica Lee and all of the other confidential survivor advocates can be reached through the VPA website, which we'll link to at the end of this episode. If you want to learn more about the VPA or to get support, go to the website uwb.edu slash violence dash prevention or go to the UW Bothell website and search for VPA. Speaking of the VPA website, a few closing notes directly from their site. If you're a survivor of interpersonal violence, the most important thing you need to know is that we believe you. The VPA and those of us who work in the Counseling Center want you to know that we also all believe in your power and strength to recover. Sexual harassment, sexual assault, stalking, and relationship violence are never your fault. If you need help or support, reach out. There are people who want to help. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. My name is Randy Scott, and I'll see you next time in the Crow's Nest. The Crow's Nest podcast represents the opinions of the host and the guests on the show. 
The content and views do not necessarily represent the views of the University of Washington. The content on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute advice or services. Because every person is unique, make sure you consult with a professional about your specific questions and individual health care needs. If you need immediate mental health support, call 988. Visit 988lifeline.org or access care anytime using the My SSP app.